The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, so I've done a kind of a cumulative um, summary of the entire book, uh, and so that is useful, but we just do not have the time to go over all of that. So I I would just, you know, those are just quick little bullets um, that will bring us from the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress up to the place we're at. So we're going to dive right in, and I'm not exactly sure where you guys were last time, so Wes, if I go back over some things... I apologize, but I want to talk about the conversation they have uh, about this individual temporary. So go ahead, skip ahead to that section. It's in Roman numeral two after the summary, and let's talk about this. Now, what's going to happen in these first two sections is that they're going to discuss effectively a case study on apostasy. Apostasy. What does that word mean to you, apostasy? Yeah, we're seeing some of that, some pretty high-profile individuals last number of, of weeks that have done that and have made, uh, I guess they call them deconversion stories. It's really pretty sad. It's been going on a long time. But what uh, Bunyan does is he gives us uh, a case study, an individual named Temporary, and then talks about, uh, tries to deconstruct really what was going on inside him. And then what are the practical steps toward apostasy? So let's walk together with that. Christian, well then, did you not know about 10 years ago, one temporary in your parts, who was a forward man in religion then? Know him, said Hopeful. Yes, he dwelt in Graceless, a town about two miles off of Honesty, and he dwelt next door to one Turnback. Christian, right, he dwelt under the same roof with him. Well, that man was much awakened once. I believe that then he had some sight of his sins and of the wages that were due thereto. Hopeful. I am of your mind, for my house, not being above three miles from him, he would oft times come to me, and that with many tears. Truly I pitied the man, and was not altogether without hope of him. But, one may see, it is not everyone that cries, Lord, Lord. Christian, he told me once that he was resolved to go on pilgrimage, as we do now. But, all of a sudden, he grew acquainted with one's save self, and then he became a stranger to me. All right, so let's look at reasons for apostasy. Hopeful. Now, since we are talking about him, let us a little inquire into the reason of the sudden backsliding of him and such others. Christian, it may be very profitable, but do you begin? Hopeful. Well, then, there are, in my judgment, four reasons for it. First, though the consciences of such men are awakened, yet their minds are not changed. Therefore, when the power of guilt weareth away, that which provoked them to be religious ceaseth. Wherefore, they naturally turn to their own course again, even as we see the dog that is sick of what he has eaten. So long as his sickness prevails, he vomits and casts all up. Not that he doth this of a free mind, if we may say a dog has a mind, but because it troubleth his stomach. But now, when his sickness is over, And so his stomach eased, his desire being not at all alienate from his vomit, he turns him about and licks all up. And so is true, which is written, the dog that is turned back to his own vomit again, 2 Peter 2.22. Thus I say, being hot for heaven, by virtue only of the sense and fear of the torments of hell, 
as their sense of hell and the fears of damnation chills and cools, so their desires for heaven and salvation cool also. So then it comes to pass that when their guilt and fear is gone, their desires for heaven and happiness die, and they return to their course again. Secondly, another reason is they have slavish fears that do overmaster them. I speak now of the fears that they have of men. For the fear of man bringeth a snare, Proverbs 29, 25. So then, though they seem to be hot for heaven, so long as the flames of hell are about their ears, yet when that terror is a little over, they betake themselves to second thoughts, namely that it is good to be wise and not to run, for they know not what, the hazard of losing all, or at least of bringing themselves into unavoidable and unnecessary troubles, and so they fall in with the world again. Thirdly, the shame that attends religion lies also as a block in their way. They are proud and haughty, and religion in their eye is low and contemptible. Therefore, when they have lost their sense of hell and wrath to come, they return again to their former course. Fourthly, guilt and to meditate terror are grievous to them. They like not to see their misery before they come into it, though perhaps the sight of it first, if they love that sight, might make them fly whither the righteous fly and are safe. But because they do, as I hinted before, even shun the thoughts of guilt and terror, therefore when once they are rid of their awakenings about the terrors and wrath of God, they harden their hearts gladly and choose such ways as will harden them more and more. Christian, you are pretty near the business, for the bottom of all is for want of a change in their mind and will. And therefore they are but like the felon that standeth before the judge. He quakes and trembles and seems to repent most heartily. But the bottom of all is the fear of the halter, that is the noose. Not that he hath any detestation of the offense, as is evident, because let but this man have his liberty, and he will be a thief and so a rogue still, whereas if his mind was changed, he would be otherwise. So let's just stop and kind of recoup what we've seen. How do they explain the condition of somebody who apostatizes? Somebody who at one point seems to be serious about his faith, but then at some point later repudiates it. What, what insights does Bunyan give here? Yeah, Christian says the bottom of all is for lack, want means lack, lack of a change of their mind and will. They actually haven't repented. All right? So why then all the noise and, and, and talk and, and activity about religion? Why would they do that? Why would they go to church and talk a lot about things and read the Bible and read a lot of Christian books and hang out with a lot of Christians for a while? Why do they do that? That's a great summary. Um, let me add what I think. Christian says, you get to the near, the, the bottom of it all is X. I think, let me, let me ask a question about you, just a diagnostic question. Do you perceive in yourself a similar pattern where you have stronger senses of conviction of sin and then they wear off? Does that ever happen to you? Come on, be honest. <laughs> where you'll hear a convicting sermon, you'll read a book, you say, I've got to do X. And X is something biblical, something strong, and you do it for a while and then it wears off. Do you see that happening to you? All of us do. How is it then that, speaking for myself, how can I make it through decades as a Christian? So decades later, I'm still regularly convicted of my sin, still love Jesus, still want to follow him. What is the difference between the person they're describing here 
and me and all of you if you're genuine believers. What's the difference? Why is there a continual pattern of renewal of fear of the Lord, of a genuine work of conviction? Uh, what's the difference? Yeah, I would say the difference is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that makes me continually come again and again to the law and be convicted and come again to Christ and to the cross and find grace there and, and mercy and forgiveness. It is the Holy Spirit that won't let me go. So in the end, these are all kind of to some degree fruits of the work of the Spirit versus evidence of not the work of the Spirit, where there can be words and circumstances and, and a feeling that comes at a revival meeting or a preaching time or whatever that are natural and people will feel them, but it wears off. And so I think that's the thing. We want to, we want to in the end say the difference is the grace of God is mediated to us directly by the Holy Spirit. He is at work in us. Other than that, we're no different. We would apostatize. Any other comments about this? Yeah, I, I would say one of the hardest passages on this, Craig, and I understand what you're saying. Let's, let's actually hold off on the Hebrew stuff because Hebrews is all about this. This is what the book of Hebrews is about, uh, to an epistle of mourning. So let's keep going. Why would you say it's beneficial to study these insights? And we'll, we'll ask this again in a moment. Uh, they're going to go through practical steps of apostasy. How does it happen? Why is it beneficial to study how it is that people apostatize? Examine yourself. You start to, I think it puts you in a, in a healthy fear because you see similar patterns that are going on. There are similar ways that we nibble at the bait of the world. There are similar things that we do. And it should put us in a, in a fearful state that would cause us to run back more vigorously to Christ. So I think we do need to study it um, and try to understand. Let's keep going. The practical steps toward apostasy. Hopeful. Now I have showed you the reasons of their going back. Do you show me the manner thereof? So will I willingly say Christian. Number one. First, they draw off their thoughts, all that they may, from the remembrance of God, death, and the judgment to come. So they don't think about those things anymore. Number two. Then they cast off, by degrees, private duties, such as closet prayer, curbing their lusts, watching, sorrow for sin, and the like. So they stop doing those things. They were doing them, now they're not doing them anymore. Number three, then they shun the company of lively and warm Christians. Number four, after that, they grow cold to public duty as hearing, reading, godly conference, and the like. So it would be Sunday morning. That would be uh, public worship. Number five, then they begin to pick holes, as we say, in the coats of some of the godly, and that devilishly, that they, have some a, that they may have a seeming color to throw their religion for the sake of some infirmity they have espied in them behind their back. So they start to find faults in people, flaws. And number six, then they begin to adhere to and associate themselves with carnal, loose, and wanton men. So they start hanging out with the wrong crowd. Number seven, then they give way to carnal and wanton discourses in secret. And glad are they if they can see such things in any that are counted honest, that they may the more boldly do it through their example. So they start doing some bad things. They start playing with sin. They enjoy it a little bit. And they're happy if they can find some other professors of faith in Christ that are doing the same things. Then number eight, after this, they begin to play with little sins openly, more boldly trying some things on. Number nine, and then being hardened, they show themselves as they are, thus being launched again into the gulf of misery. Unless a miracle of grace prevent it, they everlastingly perish in their own deceivings. 
So as I read through this list, I began to make me uh, contemplate the book of Hebrews, which is, uh, above all things, a, an epistle of warning. Uh, it is to warn people. It was written to Jewish professors of faith in Christ who are being strongly tempted to forsake New Covenant uh, Christianity and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And to do that, they had to trample on Jesus. They had to turn their back on Jesus as the Messiah. And so the, the epistle is written to warn people not to do it, and it stands as a timeless warning. In the NIV 84 translation, I noticed in Hebrews 2.1, Hebrews 3.12, and Hebrews uh, 6, 4 through 6, uh, the use of the word away. It's not in all the translations, but we'll follow that translation. Uh, Hebrews 2.1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So the phrase there would be drift away. Okay, Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So there the phrase would be turns away. So you go from drift away to turn away. And then finally, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back again to repentance because to their own loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So there you have fall away. So you see a progression there, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, from drift away to turn away to fall away. So as you look at that, what, would, what does the phrase drift away mean to you and how does it relate to the thing they've been talking about here? Okay, little ways, compromises that you're making with sin and with the world, okay. Um, what about turn away? What, what would that be? Somebody who has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's a more decisive choice. And then we would reserve the word fall away for complete apostasy. All right, so there is a practical turning away, but the person still isn't denying that they're a Christian. When they fall away, then they're denying that they're a Christian. Now, here's the thing, Craig, I do want to push back on you just a little bit. It seems very difficult to reach people like this because they've heard it all. They're actually no longer afraid of biblical warnings. They've actually worked all that through. It is better that they not be deceived. If they're genuinely not Christian, it's good to know that you're genuinely not a Christian. But one of the hardest verses for me as somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation is the use of the word impossible in Hebrews 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to bring them back again to repentance. It's impossible. Now, why would I find that a challenging word? Right, like Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God, how would you finish it? All things are possible. Then how do we understand the use of the word impossible? The only way we can put those two verses together is to say because God won't do it. He's not going to renew them again to repentance. That's the only reason why it would be impossible. And the reason that I would say that is you have to go earlier in he Hebrews 6. He says, let us leave behind the elementary teaching of Christ and go on to maturity. And God permitting, we will do so. So it's all about whether God permits you to grow. And so the only way then we can really understand the word impossible is God's not, he's choosing not to renew these people and bring them back. Now, for us, I don't really know how we understand all this, except you're supposed to read this in fear. 
And the author says later in the same chapter, Hebrews 6, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So he says, I'm hoping for good things concerning you. So don't do that. All right, so um, I think we've mentioned this, but why would you say studying all this, the steps to apostasy, understanding the practical aspects, how should we make best use of that information? Yeah, amen, that's good. I think we need to look big picture here in this book, in this allegory, that Bunyan is presenting the Christian life as a race to be run, a journey to be traveled, a movement from point A to point Z, let's say. And in the, in the allegory, we have seen many characters, not one or two, many that have traveled for a little while on the journey and end up falling away or stop or don't keep, keep on going or turn back. I mean, I could, I could list them all, one after the other, beginning with, with pliable. I mean, this is a regular theme in Bunyan's allegory. And the point is he's urging you, O oh reader, keep running the race. That's what he's telling you. Keep running the race. Don't give up. Don't, don't yield to sin. Don't think everything's going to be fine if you play with the world and all that. Don't do it. Fear and keep running. That's, I think, what we get out. All right, let's move on now to Beulah land and the foretaste of heaven. Wes, have you ever sung the song Beulah land? Yeah, actually, it's a beautiful song. I won't ask you to do it now, though. Right, so. <laughs> it's a pretty song, though. Beulah uh, means married. It's a Hebrew for married. Um, it's a sense of, of the, the love that God has for his people, uh, like a, bride, uh, a bridegroom for his bride. So let's read. Now I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims were got over the enchanted ground. So I, say, I skipped that section. I'm not covering everything tonight. Um, and entering into the country of Beulah, whose air was very sweet and pleasant, the way lying directly through it, they solaced themselves there for a season. Yea, here they heard continually the singing of birds, and saw every day the flowers appear on the earth, and heard the voice of the turtle in the land. In this country the sun shineth night and day. Wherefore, this was beyond the valley of the shadow of death, and also out of the reach of giant despair, neither could they from this place so much as see Doubting Castle. Here they were within sight of the city they were going to. Also here met them some of the inhabitants thereof, for in this land the shining ones commonly walked, because it was upon the borders of heaven. In this land also the contract between the bride and the bridegroom was renewed. Yea, here, as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so did their God rejoice over them. Here they had no want of corn and wine, for in this place they met with abundance of what they had sought for in all their pilgrimage. Here they heard voices from out of the city, loud voices, saying, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. Here all the inhabitants of the country called them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out, etc. Now as they walked in this land, they had more rejoicing than in parts more remote from the kingdom to which they were bound. And drawing near to the city, they had yet a more perfect view thereof. It was builded of pearls and precious stones. And also the street thereof was paved with gold, so that by reason of the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian with desire felt sick, fell sick. Hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease. Wherefore, here they lay by it a while, crying out because of their pangs. If ye find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of love. 
But being a little strengthened and better able to bear their sickness, they walked on their way and came yet nearer and nearer where were orchards, vineyards, and gardens. And their gates opened into the highway. Now as they came up to these places, behold, the gardener stood in the way to whom the pilgrim said, Whose goodly vineyards and gardens are these? He answered, They are the king's and are planted here for his own delight, also for the solace of pilgrims. So the gardener had them into the vineyards and bid them refresh themselves with the dainties. He also showed them there the king's walks and the arbors where he delighted to be, and here they tarried and slept. Now I beheld in my dream that they talked more in their sleep at this time than ever they did in all their journey. And being an amused thereabout, the gardener said even to me, Wherefore amusest thou at this matter? It is the nature of the fruit of the grapes of these vineyards to go down so sweetly as to cause the lips of them that are asleep to speak. What in the world is this all about? <laughs> what is he talking about in the allegory of the Christian life? What does this represent? Let me, let me give you a key clue. All right. Keep in mind, on what side of the river of death are they? This is an easy one. They're on this side, so they haven't died yet. Keep that in mind. And also it says, um, here they were within sight of the city to which they were going. So what do you think this is referring to then? They haven't died yet, but they're within sight of the city. Okay, they're near, near to death. What's going on in them? How would you characterize them? Longing for heaven. Are they happy? Oh, very happy. All right, like almost drunk with happiness. All right. So what do you think it represents? They're nearing death, but not everybody who nears death is like this. So there is a great increase in their hope. I would say that's true. I would say that when it considers future blessings that you do not have yet, but that are promised to you in the scripture, and you're filled with a strong sense of that future blessing, that's what hope is, that's the same as faith. All right, Faith having to do with the future, based on the promise of God, is hope. They're equal. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So they are filled with faith. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. So what do you think is happening with these folks? God is giving them something here, isn't he? What is he giving to them? Foretaste of heaven. Look at the lyrics. Look carefully at the lyrics of the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Read over it, okay? It's like either she's like on some drug trip or God has given her a foretaste as she wrote that song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus of mine, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, angels descending, fill with, you know. It's just, it's, it's an ecstatic experience what some would call um, almost mysticism, a sense of an overwhelming presence of glory through the heavenly promises or prospect, but you're not there yet. She wants a foretaste of glory divine, you know? So we've talked about this before, and I've told you that there are many instances of brothers and sisters in Christ that have these kinds of foretastes to the point which, I mean, no one had them like the Apostle Paul. So what, or I guess Apostle John. John also. He wrote a book about it. Okay. <laughs> and you can read his book. It's better than some of these quirky, you know, fraudulent things that talk about some boy that goes up to heaven and comes back and talks about some uncle that he never knew. Forget all that. Here you have the inspired account of the Apostle John's trip to heaven. 
called the book of Revelation. You can read about it. That's fine. Paul wasn't allowed to talk about it. He was not allowed to even talk about what happened to him. And he's cagey about it like you're not even sure it's him, but it's him. All right. God gave him a vision of the third heaven. Remember? And whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows he was caught up to paradise. Yeah. Nana. Yes, sir. Nana. Oh, okay. You're asking, like, how can I have that, right? You want it, you're like, I want, I want some of that. Well, um, you know, there's, there's a book I would commend to you that's written all about this, all right? It's entitled Joy Unspeakable. It's written by Martin Lloyd-Jones. The first time I heard about these ecstatic experiences, he goes through church history accounts and finds them. And so, uh, if, I don't know if it's still in print, but you probably can get it. Joy Unspeakable. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh preacher uh, in the 20th century, probably, in my opinion, the greatest preacher of the 20th century greatest expositor of the 20th century. Billy Graham was the greatest evangelistic preacher. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, the greatest expositor. So Joy Unspeakable, and he just basically, the thesis of the book is that God, again and again, uh, pours out powerful experiences in the Spirit on the church for the purpose of evangelistic advancement, fruit. He does, that's the thesis of the book. But then the accounts are pretty amazing. They're pretty amazing. So God has the power to give to his people vigorous, foretaste of heavenly experience while they're on this side of the river of death. Why would he do that? Very comforting. Seems like these folks are, I mean, you can't, I mean, it says they can't even see Doubting Castle. I mean, they, they, they're so far from the valley of the shadow of death. It's like any of the experience that they're like as nothing compared to what they're going through right now. It is that good. So what I've said before is that you um, should press after God for this in prayer. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan writer, talks about it. Uh, and this is the, the analogy he makes of a father and a little son walking along, hand in hand, along a road, maybe in the woods or something like that. And the son is, I don't know how old, seven or eight years old. And he knows that his father loves him. There's no doubt in his mind about it. He's secure in that love. He feels that love. They're holding hands. But suddenly, moved by some internal impulse, the father picks up the son, hugs him, kisses him on the cheek, looks him in the eye with tears coming down his eyes. The father says, I will always love you. Nothing will ever change it. And then puts him back down on the road and they walk on. Is there a qualitative difference in the experience before and after? There is. And so he knew his father loved him before, but now he just knows it. It's just at a different level. And so you could actually ask God, would you mind doing that for me, Lord? Pick me up. Give me a hug through the Holy Spirit. Open up inside the eyes of my heart that they would be enlightened, that I would have a sense of how wide and long and high and deep, I'm quoting scripture here, is the love that you have for me. You can actually pray that over yourself. Oh God, would you strengthen me with power through your spirit in my inner being so that Christ would dwell in my heart through faith and that I would have power together with all the saints to grasp how much the infinite dimensions of your love for me and that I would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he can do immeasurably more than all you ask or think. Just walk through that and say, would you please do immeasurably more than all I could ask you or think, you, think that you could do? And that would be this foretaste, okay? So I saw that when they awoke, they addressed themselves to go up to the city. But as I said, the reflection of the sun upon the city, for the city was pure gold, was so extremely glorious that they could not as yet with open face behold it, but through an instrument made for that purpose. So 
I just had to stop. What is the instrument made for the purpose by which we can see the celestial city? Faith. I love it. By faith, we can see it. I had another idea too, but it's, it's com actually combined with yours. All right, let me, let me read this scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I will know fully, even as I have fully known, right? So it's now versus then. Now is this side of the river. Oh, I thought we were about to lose our power again. Keep going, keep going, hurry up. If we have to leave and they're not in the celestial city, what will I, I mean, that's terrible. All right, hurry up, hurry up. All right, so now we see through a glass, glass would be like a mirror or something like that, indistinctly, imperfectly. How do we see heaven now? You said by faith, but when you think of transparent gold, when you think of pearly gates, when you think of a multitude greater than anyone could count, when you think of a throne with 24 elders, where did all that information come from? It comes from the Bible. It comes through scripture. It doesn't come through your fantasies. So faith comes from the word of God. So the instrument by which we see heaven from afar is scripture. All right? It's exegesis. It's passages of scripture that you interpret properly and you're seeing it from afar. There, you will not need the Bible. The truth of the word will be all around you and his words will never pass away, but you will see him face to face. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 is saying. Then will be better than now. Now is good, then is infinitely better. Now is sufficient information, then face to face, much better. So no exegesis, no logic, no theology, just truth flowing in through your eyes. Like Job said, I've heard of you with the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. That's what heaven's about. That's the difference between faith and sight. Like we talk about this, when your faith becomes sight, you won't need your faith anymore, you'll see him directly. So that's the instrument made for that purpose by which we can see the celestial city from afar. There it was like, I don't know, some telescope or something like that. I don't really know what it was. All right, now we get to the river of death. Let's not linger. We need to press on. Christian, hopeful, are told ahead of time about the river. So I saw that as they went on, there met them two men in raiment that shone like gold. Also their faces shone as the light. These men asked the pilgrims whence they came, and they told them. They also asked them where they had lodged, what difficulties and dangers, what comforts and pleasures they had met with on the way, and they told them. Then the men uh, that met them, then said the men that met them, you have but two difficulties more to meet with, and then you are in the city. Christian then and his companion asked the men to go along with them. So they told them that they would, but, said they, you must obtain it by your own faith. <clears throat> so I saw in my dream that they went on together until they came in sight of the gate. Now I further saw that betwixt them and the gate was a river, but there was no bridge to go over. The river was very deep. At the sight, therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went in with them said, you must go through or you cannot come at the gate. Let me ask a question. Why is it beneficial to think ahead of time about the reality and inevitability of your own death? And what are some healthy ways of doing this and unhealthy ways? So first of all, do you think it's beneficial to think in practical terms about your own death? All right, so we can be prepared for it. You should picture it. Are there... 
healthy ways to do this and unhealthy. Let's talk about some unhealthy. What would be some unhealthy ways to think about your own death? Yeah, that's almost the definition of morbid introspection. You're thinking about death all the time, et cetera. It's crippling, paralyzing, okay. Obviously, toying with suicide would be an unhealthy way of thinking about your own death. Um, so that's, that's pretty weighty, okay. Um, what are some healthy ways to think about your own death? Yeah, I, I'm going to just quote, I, th I think what you said just leads right into Psalm 90, verse 12, which says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So you have a finite set. Like think about like a tray of, of chocolates, okay? I'm not doing, what was that movie, Life is Like a Box of Chocolates? I, I saw it. All right, all right, I'm not doing that. But I'm saying there's a certain number, and it's a finite number. And when they're gone, they're gone. You should picture yourself that way. I remember I, I saw in one of the engineering jobs I had they, that, that a supplier of hardware gave us a 12-month calendar. So it was up on the wall the entire year. It was a matrix three by four, three months, you know, January, February, March, April, May, June, halfway through, July, August, September, October, November, December. So that's how it was. And I'm, I was looking at it all year long. And kind of, nobody put X's through it, but you can see, you know, where you're at. Then I thought, well, if January 1st represented my birthday and December 31st my death day, I wonder where I am. Is it August? Is it November? Is it March? Probably not. Is it May? You could look at actuarial charts that insurance companies give, and you could guess about where you're at, but there is going to be a December 31st day for you. And so you should number your days. You don't know, you will not know the literal number, but just know they are numbered. There's a finite number. All right, I think there is no healthier way to think about death. And Hebrews 9.27 said, it is appointed to you to die once and after that to face judgment. The only thing that tempers that is the idea that 1 Corinthians 15 says there's a mysterious final generation that will not die, will not sleep, but they will be changed. So if we're in that final generation that's on earth when Jesus returns, you can read about your quality of life in Revelation 8 and 9, and what it will be like for you to be on planet earth at that time. Since I do not believe in a secret rapture, there you'll be. And you'll have to get through somehow the seven, bowl, seven trumpets and seven bowls, and it will be a pretty rough way to go out. That's why Jesus comes back is to rescue his people. Hear about it in my sermons in Revelation 8 and 9. But if you are that final generation, you will not die in the normal way. But everyone else, if you're not in that final generation, it is destined for you to die. You are destined to die. It's good to know that. There is no healthier view, uh, way to th see it than Philippians 1.21. Can someone read that for us? Philippians 1.21. You can't, you can't do any better than that. I want to keep on living. Why? Because it will be fruitful labor for me. I want to store up treasure in heaven. I want to bless God's people. I want to glorify God in this world. As many days as possibly I can have in this life, I want. But to quote Adoniram Judson, I am not weary of this world and I'm not weary of God's work. But when he calls me, I'll be like a schoolboy on the final day of school. I'm out of here and I'll be glad to do it. So for me to live as Christ, that's a good thing. For me to die is gain, which is even more of an experience of Christ. Can't do any better than that. 2 Timothy 4 and 2 Peter 1, the two uh, the apostles, uh, Paul and Peter, both clearly sensed their time, the time for their departure had come. They were very well aware that, that they would soon die, and they were getting ready for that. Okay? All right. The pilgrims then began to inquire if there was no other way to the gate, to which they answered yes, 
but there hath not any save two to wit Enoch and Elijah been permitted to tread that path since the foundation of the world, nor shall until the last trumpet shall sound. So Bunyan just covered that. When the last trumpet sounds in that generation, they won't die. So if I can just pause, if you're expecting a chariot, a chariot and horses of fire to descend and lift you up from planet Earth and bring you straight into heaven as Elijah did, go ahead and do that. I'm just saying it's not likely, all right? Uh, so if you want to live the kind of life that Elijah did and the kind of ministry he had, he was clearly a special case. Uh, Elisha did not experience it. The pilgrims then, especially Christian, began to despond in their minds and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of a depth, were they the same, same depth? Uh, they said no, uh, yet they could not help them in that case, for, said they, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. In other words, you're experiencing, your experience crossing the river will be in proportion to your faith. Interesting statement. All right, so Christians, severe trial and death compared with hopeful's relative ease. Then they addressed themselves to the water and entering, Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Selah, he's quoting a psalm. Then said the other, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, it is good. Then said Christian, ah, my friend, the sorrows of death hath compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And then with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian. So they could not see before him. Also here, he in great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. So it's like, almost like dementia. You can't think clearly at that point. But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears, that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they stood by, they that stood by perceived he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Forever and anon, he would intimate that so much by words. So in other words, there's a sense of demonic assault bringing up past sins and accusing him of those past sins. So he's very mindful of his sinfulness and that he doesn't deserve to go to heaven. And not in any helpful way. He just feels incredibly guilty. Hopeful, therefore, here had much ado to keep his brother's head above the water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down, and there, then ere a while he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate, and men standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you, it is you they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you, and so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, said he, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text. Where it is said of the wicked, there are no bands in their death. But their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Psalm 73. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you but they are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. 
Let's stop and look at this. Why is it you think, uh, do you think that some Christians go through death more easily than others? Remember that the angel said, you'll find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place in proportion to your faith. So people with stronger faith will go through the experience of death more easily than those with weaker faith. What does it mean to you to die well? That phrase, to die well, what does that mean? Right, so people are watching, family is watching, spouse maybe, kids, grandkids, unsaved medical people, saved medical people, they're watching. And so for me, I think to die well means to die filled with hope. That's what I think it means. If I can just keep it simple, you don't have any works to do, you're not going anywhere, okay? We picture it that you're in a bed, you know you're dying. I'm not talking about you know, a car crash on a winter day. I mean, at age 39. That's not what I mean. I mean, you know you're dying. You have a diagnosis. You know how things are going. You can see the end and the, the affliction probably by which. No one knows for certain because you could always be cured, be healed. But you have a sense of that. That you would be filled with buoyant hope. That you would know that you did not get your inheritance in this world and you're going to it. And you're, you're, you're living out for me to live as Christ to die is gain and that you're eager for that gain so what I would say is you can get ready now today to die well you know get ready now to die well and you do that by putting sin to death now by walking in the power of the spirit now by you know serving faithfully now it strengthens you and gets your faith ready friends we got to get in the celestial city so I'm going to keep on going all right then I saw in my dream that Christian was as an amuse a while to whom also hopeful added this word, be of good cheer, Jesus Christ, Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian, break out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And then they both took courage, and the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found grand ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow, thus they got over. So now they're on the, on the other side, the celestial city. Now upon the bank of the river, on the other side, they saw the two shining men again, who there waited for them. Wherefore, being come out of the river, they saluted them, saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those that shall be heirs of salvation. Thus they went along towards the gate. Now you must note that the city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms, and also they had left their mortal garments behind them in the river. For though they went in with them, they came out without them. So if I can pause there, they are absent from the body present with the Lord. So they're done with their physical bodies until the resurrection. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed through the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. Second Corinthians 5 says, absent from the body present with the Lord. Hebrews 12 mentions the spirits of righteous people made perfect. So there are disembodied spirits. We believe in that. Do you believe in that? Disembodied spirits. 
spirits that have no bodies. Yes, they're those that died in the Lord and are waiting for the resurrection body. And they've not come into their resurrection inheritance yet. They're waiting so that together with us will they be made perfect. Everyone gets their resurrection body at the same time except one person, and that's Jesus. He already has his. So that's uh, what's going on. Heavenly life described now by the angels as they ascend to it. Here's a poem. Now, now, look how the holy pilgrims ride. Clouds are their chariots. Angels are their guide. Who would not here for him all hazards run that thus provides for his when this world's done? In other words, that's Bunyan saying, run your race, be vigorous, serve God, because look what you get when you get to the other side. The talk they had with the shining ones was about the glory of the place, who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable country or company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given to you. And your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth, to wit sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death. For the former things are passed away. You are now going to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and to the prophets, men that God hath taken away from the evil to come, and that are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. The men then asked, What must we do in the holy place? To whom it was answered, You must there receive the comforts of all your toil. And have joy for all your, all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king, by the way. In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desired to serve in the world, though with much difficulty, because of the infirmity of your flesh." There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the Mighty One. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you. And there you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into the holy place after you. There also you shall be clothed with glory and majesty and put into an equipage fit to ride out with the King of glory. And when he shall uh, come with sound of trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind, you shall come with him and when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment, you shall sit by him. Yea, and when he shall pass sentence upon all the workers of iniquity, let them be angels or men, you also shall have a voice in that judgment, because they were his and your enemies. Also, when he shall again return to the city, you shall go with him too, to the sound of trumpet, and be ever with him. All right, so when you read that description of the heavenly life, what most appeals to you? being with the king, conversations with Jesus. Can we say all of it? Yeah, why not? How about, how about the whole thing? You don't get parts, uh, parts of it, but why not all of it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's there in a little bit form. I just want to develop it. You know, I, I just keep developing it. It's, it's just amazing. Those that write about heaven generally write about what it's like just to be there, and that's wonderful. But I'm just saying to know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to know what they did. I like the little hints. He says, there you'll receive the fruit of the seeds you sow, but you never saw the harvest in this world. That's pretty awesome. All right, fellowship with the angels as they ascend. Now, while they were thus drawing towards the gate, 
Behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and that have left all for his holy name. And he has sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. Then the heavenly host gave a great shout, saying, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. There also came out at this time to meet them several of the king's trumpeters, clothed in white and shining raiment, who, with melodious noises and loud, made even the heavens to echo with their sound. These trumpeters saluted Christian and his fellow with ten thousand welcomes from the world, and this they did with shouting and sound of trumpet. This done, they compassed them round on every side. Some went before, some behind, some on the right hand and some on the left as it were to guard them through the upper regions, continually sounding as they went with melodious noise in noises and in notes on high, so that the very sight was to them that could behold it as if heaven itself were come down to meet them. Thus, therefore, they walked on together, and as they walked, ever and anon these trumpeters, even with joyful sound, would, by mixing their music with looks and gestures, still signify to Christian and his brother how welcome they were into their company, and with what gladness they came to meet them. So in other words, they really knew that they were loved. We're so glad you're here, that kind of thing. I love that. With looks and gestures, let them know how welcome they were. So that's just good hospitality. But now it's heavenly hospitality. It's pretty awesome. And now were these two men, as it were, in heaven, before they came at it being swallowed up with the sight of angels and with hearing of their melodious notes. Here also they had uh, the city in view, city itself in view. And they thought that they heard all the bells therein to ring, to welcome them thereto. But above all, the warm and joyful thoughts that they had about their own dwelling there, with such company, and that forever and ever. Oh, by what tongue or pen can their glorious joy be expressed? And thus they came up to the gate. So Second Peter 1.11 speaks of receiving a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. We don't have time to talk about what that concept means to you. I just want to commit that concept to you. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be richly welcomed into heaven? All right, let's keep going. Now, when they were come up to the gate, there was written over it in letters of gold, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation 22, 14. Then I saw in my dream that the shining men bid them call in at the gate, the which, when they did, some looked from above over the gate to wit Enoch, Moses, and Elijah, to whom it was said, These pilgrims are come from the city of destruction, for the love that they bear to the king of this place. And then the pilgrims gave in unto them each man his certificate, which they had received in the beginning. Those, therefore, were carried in to the king who, when he had read them, said, Where are the men? To whom it was answered, They are standing without the gate. The king then commanded to open the gate that the righteous nation, which keepeth the truth, may enter in. So what do you think Bunyan's emphasizing here? That the righteous nation, the one that keeps his commandments, has the right to enter into the city. Give me the certificate. Let me look at it. Let me read it. Okay, you can come in. What's, what's going on here? All right. Another question would be, Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Let me take the middle phrase out. Make every effort or strive, be diligent to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Paul, what does that mean to you? Yes. 
that God actually, Christ actually evaluates our fruit. We are justified by faith alone, but we are evaluated, assessed by fruit. If you are genuinely a Christian, will there most certainly be fruit? If there's no fruit, what does John 15 say about you? I am the vine, you're the branch. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. Such branches are collected up and thrown in the fire and burned. If there's no fruit, there's no life. So we are not justified by our works, but we are evaluated or assessed. Remember the sheep and the goats? I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. There's evidence. There's some kind of evidence. So I think that's what he's getting at. There's a holiness, there's a lifestyle, there's a pattern of life, a pilgrimage that leads to that place. That's all, all I think Bunyan is saying. Now I saw in my dream that these two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on them that shone like, the gold, like gold. There was also them that met them with harps and crowns and gave them to them, the harps to praise withal, and the crowns in tokens of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy, and that it was said unto them, Enter ye into the joy of your Lord. I also heard the men themselves and they, uh, that they sang with a loud voice, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and un unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now, just as the gates were opened to let in the men, I looked in after them, and behold, the city shone like the sun. The streets also were paved with gold, and in them walked many men with crowns upon their heads, palms in their hands, golden harps to sing praises withal. There were also of them that had wings, and they answered one another without intermission, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that, they shut up the gates, which when I had seen, I wished myself among them. So here's Bunyan writing this whole story, and he doesn't get to go in. <laughs> so I'm on the outside, and they get to go in. These characters I wrote about, how blessed they are. <laughs> and I'm on the outside. But now we have ignorance. Now, while I was gazing upon all these things, I turned my head to look back and saw ignorance come up to the riverside, but he soon got over, and that without half that difficulty which the other men met with. For it happened that there was there in that place one vain hope, a ferryman, that with his boat helped, them, helped him over. So he, as the other I saw, did ascend the hill to come up to the gate, only he came alone. Neither did any man meet him with the least encouragement. And when he was come up to the gate, he looked up to, that, to the writing that was above and then began to knock, supposing that entrance should have been quickly administered to him. But he was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, Whence came you and what would you have? He answered, I have eat and drank in the presence of the king, and he is taught in our streets. And then they asked him for his certificate that they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his bosom for one but found none. They said, Have you none? But the man answered never a word. So they told the king, but he would not go down to see him, but commanded the two shining ones that conducted Christian hopeful to the city to go out and take ignorance and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him and carried him through the air to the door that I saw on the side of the hill and put him in there. And then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. So I woke and behold, it was a dream. So I think this relates to what Jesus said. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? We would imagine that such people have a full expectation of going to heaven. But he will say at that time, I never knew you. 
away from me, you evildoers. Some have told me that these are some of the scariest verses in the Bible, that you could be completely self-deceived about whether you're born again. There's no good reason for that. There are lots of marks of true regeneration spoken of throughout the New Testament. You just have to honestly apply them to yourself and see if you can see evidence of being born again in yourself. Conclusion. Now, reader, I have told my dream to thee. See if thou canst interpret it to me, or to thyself or neighbor, but take heed of misinterpreting, for that, instead of doing good, will but thyself abuse. By misinterpreting, evil ensues. Take heed also that thou be not extreme in playing with the outside of my dream, nor let my figure or similitude put thee into a laughter or a feud. Leave this for boys and fools, but as for thee, do thou the substance of my matter see. Put by the curtains, look within my veil. Turn up my metaphors and do not fail. There, if thou seekest them, such things to find as will be helpful to an honest mind. What of my dross thou findest there, be bold, to throw away, but yet preserve the gold. What if my gold be wrapped up in ore? None throws away the apple for the core. But if thou shalt cast all away as vain, I know not, but twill make me dream again. And so he wrote part two about four years later. <laughs> about Christiana, Christiana and her children and the journey that they had. All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.